Hi, I'm Dr. Daniel Bynes. I'm Amanda. I'm Jonathan. And I'm Dr. Katie Elson. And together, we are The, the Brain, Brain People. People. A group of real, practicing mental health professionals. This podcast is a one-stop shop for all your mental health needs. We'll give you the tools to beat depression and anxiety one episode at a time. Are you ready? Let's go. Welcome to the Brain People Podcast. I'm Dr. Daniel Bynes, and I'm here along with a um, colleague, Jonathan Edens, who's a physician's assistant. And we're here to talk about a very interesting topic, and that topic is bipolar disorder. Yeah, typically where we start when we talk about an individual diagnosis is going through the DSM. So the DSM, we sometimes refer to it as the Bible you know, of psychiatry because that's what we use in order to make our diagnoses. Um, so when we're distinguishing between you know, what, what we call bipolar disorder and what we call sometimes unipolar disorder would be more so whether or not you have depression and or with mania. Um, so really the distinguishing character is the characteristic of bipolar disorder is going to be that mania component. Um, so when we reference the DSM, um, the DSM does have very specific criteria. And so we can kind of walk through some of those. Yeah, it's it's pretty interesting. You know, when we're dealing with patients, a lot of times people come in and they're quite depressed. And uh, and of course, the predisposition is just automatically to diagnose them with depression. Right. But sometimes we have to tease that history out because with bipolar disorder, most of the time people are actually not in a manic phase. Right. And so that's where that really underlies one of the most important aspects of taking a good psychiatric history. When we see a patient to understand, you know, have they actually had a manic episode? Because essentially that's what cinches the diagnosis of bipolar and differentiates it from depression. In fact, they tend to avoid us when they're having a manic episode because <laughs> they, they usually feel very good. Uh, so let's walk through some of those criteria of a manic episode. And we'll also talk about some of the uh, some of the things that we commonly see that people think may be actual, maybe mania, but is actually typically not. Um, so the way the DSM defines it is that it's a distinct period of a persistently elevated, expansive, or irritable mood. So let's let's dive into that a little bit. What do I mean by elevated, expansive, and irritable? Well, with elevated, expansive, or irritable, you know, I think what people are really talking about is some, some people actually feel when they're manic, like they're on a high. And so, uh, with those individuals, it, 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 like, like you said, they often will avoid seeing a clinician because the last thing they want is to be put on medications because they're feeling so good and they just want this feeling to continue forever. And it really is like being on a natural high or, or on a drug. Um, on the other hand, when we talk about the irritability or um, kind of a mixed state that people can often have or even anxiety that can come, come with bipolar, you know, a lot of times um, certain individuals will tend in their manias to be much more irritated, much more angry and, or even anxious. I've had very anxious people that are actually manic. And so those are the individuals when they are more in the manic or mixed state modes, they will actually come and seek, seek treatment. So 
some people will feel really good in their mania. Some people feel really bad. But one of the consistent themes between both of those categories is going to be an increased level of energy that one might feel. That's and, right. In addition, we'll usually see uh, additional symptoms like distractibility, racing thoughts, um, what we call a flight of ideas. So your mind sort of just rabbit holes from one thing to another constantly. Uh, we'll see increased talkativeness. Um, pressured speech. What we mean by that is just your speech tends to be far more rapid and uninterruptible. Um, we also see uh, some risky behavior at times. So this might be, you know, uh, certain activities that are typically deemed to be pleasurable, but out of character with the person's normal behavior. And so that's, that's a fairly important thing. Um, can you give us a couple examples of uh, some of this, some of these risky behaviors that you've seen? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a very, interesting sort of dynamic because you, you sometimes get people that are normally kind of demure and, and calm and, but when they go manic, they can be almost like different people. I mean, that can include like things like reckless driving, like maybe going 120 miles down the freeway, like weaving in and out of traffic. And for a lot of people, it also includes uh, sexual promiscuity and they'll go out and, and, you know, have sex with multiple partners, um, do things that they normally wouldn't do. Maybe they would go out and gamble uh, a bunch of money away um, or start businesses. You know, I've, I've had people that have just bought businesses uh, overnight because they just, wow, this looks like a great idea. I want to sure. start, um, you know, making, <laughs> making, uh, this product that I never even thought I uh, was interested in or, or buy car. I've had people buy cars, you know, just like, boom, buy a convertible overnight. And their wife is like looking at them like, what did you just do? <laughs> so, so yeah, I can definitely, uh, in, increase in impulsivity. You know, one of the, the mnemonics that, um, med students and, and other people, um, use oftentimes is a uh, dig fast. So I like the dig fast mnemonic because it actually helps us to, uh, remember the primary symptoms that come along with a manic episode. And, uh, and so, you know, we've already touched on some of those, but just to kind of highlight and go through those. So dig fast stands for distractibility, the D I for insomnia, the G for grandiosity. So, you know, a lot of times, um, people that are having a manic episode, they will be grandiose, which means that they think their ideas and everything they're doing is just amazing. <laughs> and they'll elaborate on those and you can't get them to, you know, redirect back to the here and now. So, so that's the dig part. And, um, and then the F is flight of ideas, which, you know, they really often have a, a hard time keeping a coherent train of thought. They'll be jumping from one topic to the next. And then the A is activities. They start taking on a lot of activities impulsively or, or just maybe it's something they've planned for a long time, but then they just take on way too much all at one time. I've had a lot of people that will actually start projects, uh, multiple projects in their manic phases and then never finish them, you know, like painting the house, remodeling, et cetera. Um, the S is speech. So they're talking very fast and way too much. And then finally, the, the T is thoughtlessness, which has to do again with that impulsivity and doing things that they normally wouldn't do. So 
what a question that I've con- uh, frequently had uh, is that when you look at actually the criteria for, from the DSM, a lot of these tend to be somewhat subjective, right? Yeah. Not only from the individual's perspective, but also from us as the clinician's expective, uh, perspective. And the one that we didn't really hone, hone in on, but we will talk a little bit uh, more about further further on down, um, is the the uh, the decreased need for sleep, right? The yeah. insomnia. That's the one that tends to be uh, what tends to be the easiest to sort of uh, pinpoint um, because when people have uh, some of these other symptoms and then they also have this decreased need for sleep. So it's not necessarily getting less sleep like we see with insomnia, but that they don't feel as if they need as much sleep. And so they're waking up typically multiple days in a row and they're feeling still good, even with significantly less hours uh, than they normally would. So, you know, some, some of the things uh, that can be, uh, some of the other things can be difficult to really identify. Um, but that is sort of one of the core, uh, core symptoms we're looking for. Yeah. And I think that's super important. What you just said, it's, it's not just having insomnia, but it's actually feeling like you don't need the sleep. It's having less sleep and still feeling well rested. And I think that's really important for for anyone to t- try to distinguish between the two, because there's tons of people that have, you know, depression and insomnia and don't have bipolar. And maybe they're only sleeping four or five hours a night, but they feel horrible the next day. You know, they feel tired and that sort of thing. So I always ask people like, okay, you, you're not sleeping much, but how do you feel, you know, after you're, you're not sleeping much. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about it. Like you said, there's a lot of subjectivity and I, I'd be interested in, in your take, Jonathan, but to me, it seems like, you know, a lot of times there can be a misdiagnosis because of that. Have you, have you ever seen that sort of thing? I, I definitely do feel like there have been cases where patients have come to me and they've been diagnosed by somebody else, whether that be a professional or just like family members. And I, I would like to talk about that as well. Uh, but they, they come to me and we actually go through their criteria kind of one by one and they end up sort of reporting that, you know, I actually don't feel like I do fit the criteria because I've never had a distinct episode that lasted for that extended amount of time where those symptoms were present. Uh, and maybe it was uh, actually better explained by maybe an, another condition. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that there can be a real danger there, especially when people are kind of self-diagnosing or their family diagnosing. But, you know, a lot of times I think even clinicians, uh, because they're, they're not careful enough to really follow the criteria can get misled because a patient will come in and be like, I think I have bipolar or the, or my, my wife thinks I have bipolar. And then they can all, 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 already be biased that direction when in reality, a lot of what they're seeing is I think mood swings. And that is really important to understand when we're diagnosing bipolar, that bipolar is not just mood swings. There's a distinct time element that is accompanied uh, with bipolar diagnosis. And so we talk about, you know, manic episodes and hypomanic episodes. A hypomanic episode is essentially a smaller version of mania and there's a distinct time element uh, that's that needs to be present there yeah and the dsm specifically for a manic episode requires that you have those symptoms that we just 
described for at least a week for a full manic episode and then four days for a manic episode. So if you're having, you know, days where you feel good and then somebody says, you know, a sarcastic comment and all of a sudden you feel angry and irritable. And, and so you kind of go back and forth, uh, or maybe, you know, uh, kind of a classic case, at least for women is during the monthly menstrual cycle, right? They tend to be more moody. And so sometimes they come and saying, you know, my family members, because I'm so moody, think that I'm bipolar. Yeah. Right. But they're really, they're shifting back and forth between different mood states throughout the day, kind of depending on uh, what their situation is. And so for me, that's, to me, that's more poor emotional management, right? Uh, Self-management rather than being like a, a distinct bipolar episode. That's right. Yeah. So I really do believe as a clinician that we are do best by sticking with the diagnostic criteria rather than over-diagnosing bipolar. Because frankly, I've seen a lot of people that I believe don't really have bipolar, but then they get medicated for bipolar and then they end up suffering and not really getting much better, but they end up suffering side effects from some pretty heavy hitting uh, drugs. And I think one of the most common uh, misdiagnoses that, that I often see is, uh, well, I, I, I should probably say two, is um, borderline personality disorder. I think there's a lot of overlap in, in symptoms. And it's true that some people that have borderline also have bipolar. So we need to recognize that as well. But it's also true that a lot of people that have borderline will have these bipolar type symptoms, but they don't really meet criteria for full hypomanic or manic episodes. So I don't think we should really diagnose those people, but they need really more help from dialectical behavioral therapy, that sort of thing to really help manage their emotional instability. And then the other one I think that I've seen commonly is actually a PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, where someone's had trauma, which that in itself can trigger bipolar disorder. But um, sometimes some of the symptoms of PTSD can actually look like a mixed manic state for people. I would actually throw in a couple others, uh, even just sort of regular anxiety uh, episodes, right? Good so point. Sort of acute anxiety episodes where people are really irritable, really anxious. You get a lot of racing thoughts. You don't sleep very well, right? And so sometimes you pair that with somebody that has mood swings and all of a sudden this can look like a bipolar episode. Another one that I would add is ADHD. So a lot of my patients with ADHD, they end up staying up super late at night because they procrastinate. They hyper-focus, right? Uh, they have a lot of racing thoughts and distractibility. And they also tend to be impulsive in a lot of cases. So you pair that once again with somebody that also has maybe um, depression, a history of depression, maybe some irritability, some anger, and it can it can look a lot like a manic episode. Yeah, those are really good points, and I, I agree. I've I've definitely seen those. You know, one of the the interesting things uh, that we see is that I was surprised at how how high the prevalence when I looked up the prevalence for bipolar disorder and what we found from the NIMH, the National Institute of Mental Health, is that uh, the prevalence uh, is about 4.4%, which uh, means that, you know, about one in 25 people um, would technically have bipolar, be diagnosable as bipolar, which is, wow. So there's a, this is not just a, a small issue, bipolar disorder. Now, whether, you know, there's arguments, some people would say the prevalence is lower and maybe higher, but the, the bottom line is there's, there's a, a lot of people that are dealing with this condition. And I think it's also important for us to realize that there's a big fallout you know, because some conditions like anxiety disorders, for example, they can be debilitating, especially if it's a severe anxiety disorder. But bipolar disorder, on the other hand, tends to be even more disabling than a lot of the other like more 
maybe we'll say minor psychiatric disorders. Well, one thing, one thing that we should probably clarify, and this is required for every single psychiatric diagnosis, is that it must cause some degree of impairment That's in, true. in your daily yeah. life, right? And so while maybe, you know, 4.4% of people could meet criteria at some point for a distinct uh, manic episode or hypomanic episode throughout their life, not everybody requires treatment. And so uh, can you can you maybe touch on that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because uh, back decades ago, we we had very little treatments uh, for for bipolar, and in in reality, um, what what we saw is that most people uh, actually were pretty good outside of their manic episodes and didn't require treatment. And then, you know, before we had drugs, when people were in acute mania, they would often need to be hospitalized. They would use kind of strange things like, you know, trying to cool them down, like with, with cold water or put them in dark rooms. And we say strange, but yeah, there is actually, and we'll talk about this here a little later. There is some, some evidence that some of these things actually could could possibly help. Um, of course, nowadays we don't dunk people in, in cold water unless, you know, at least unwillingly, <laughs> but, uh, but, but, but yeah, um, the bottom line is that, um, I forgot what, what, the, what the question was. Well, it's okay. I'll, I'll say the, uh, I, I think the bottom line is the severity of the illness sort of justifies the, um, the degree of treatment. Right. Yeah. And so for some people when they're maybe hypomanic, um, but it's not causing like actual major severe impairment, then we have to kind of weigh the, the pros and the cons of taking a, you know, a, a new medication. Um, some people, they can just get by with holistic measures, right? Maybe do a little therapy, change mm-hmm. your diet, get some exercise. And that ends up actually improving, um, their, their maybe future episodes. That's right. Absolutely. And, and I would say even for the most severe cases that require medication, those holistic measures actually are extremely important. Um, you know, one, one thing I wanted to mention, so a lot of people with bipolar, of course, uh, end up on disability, having a hard time functioning both personally, professionally, et cetera. But suicide is also a huge negative impact of bipolar. In fact, uh, there's estimates that say 25 to 60% of people with bipolar disorder actually attempt suicide. Mm. And oftentimes it's probably pretty violent means. And because of that, there's other estimates that show four to 19% of people with bipolar disorder actually end up ending their life in suicide. So, you know, that shows how important it is to actually identify if someone has bipolar disorder so that that can actually be addressed and managed, um, the right way. And, and so, you know, I think we should probably talk a little bit about not just diagnosis, but also like, what are the things that we can really do to address uh, bipolar disorder? Would you like to circle back and talk about causes before we go on to yeah, treatments? Yeah, that's a good idea. Why don't we, why don't we go ahead and do that? So uh, the first thing, uh, there is definitely a very strong genetic component. And now this is something that is fairly prevalent um, in a lot of different psychiatric uh, disorders, um, but schizophrenia and bipolar tend to be actually two of the strongest linked ones. So first degree relatives, if you have somebody uh, in your family with bipolar disorder, you're at about a 10, per, a 10 times increased risk of developing the disease yourself. Uh, identical twins. So when they've looked at, uh, you know, identical twins in, in research studies, if one had bipolar disorder, then there was about a 40 to 70% chance that the other one had bipolar disorder. And and I want to make a quick comment there because I think that's really important. Uh, twin studies are, I love twin studies because essentially what we're saying there is 
if you're an identical twin, you have the same DNA, right? But what we see from twin studies, um, even from something that's um, highly genetic, like bipolar or schizophrenia, is that even if you have the same DNA, it doesn't mean that 100% of the time, the other individual has, gets bipolar disorder. So to me, I think that's, it's helpful to understand that because uh, then we realize like, okay, let's say I'm at a high, I know I'm at a higher risk. There's other things I can do to actually mitigate that risk to decrease the likelihood that I'm going to develop bipolar disorder. Right. And I think that actually goes along with these other causes that we're going to talk about to really do what we can to minimize or avoid, you know, kind of triggering because genetics, you know, you, you maybe heard it say that genetics can load the gun and environment and the choices we make kind of pull the trigger. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I've used that analogy uh, myself before with many of my patients. So some other causes aside from just the pure genetics, so some of the things that could potentially trigger a manic episode, there are actually medical reasons uh, that this can happen. Um, would you like to touch on any of those? Sure. Yeah. You know, I've, I've often seen people that have actually had medication induced manic episodes. Now that can be antidepressants, which is common, especially if someone is already predisposed genetically, if they take Prozac or, you know, Zoloft or Effexor, uh, some of these people will be like, yeah, I, I just took one dose and I felt like I was going crazy. And I, I felt like I was on this manic high or extremely irritable. And it's like, okay, that's not usually quite normal. So then we have to really tease out. Um, so that definitely can trigger antidepressants. Um, but so can steroids. I think steroids are the other most common medication that I've seen uh, trigger stimulants, anything that, you know, any kind of medication that's going to tend to be like an upper can definitely trigger manic, but yeah, steroids are classic. I mean, what's interesting about steroids, even people that don't have bipolar and never have a manic episode can have manic like symptoms when they take steroids. And, and for those of you who have had to take steroids in the past, you've probably realize that, um, you know, a lot of times you actually get more energy with steroids and you almost, you feel better and you feel like I don't need as much sleep. And, and so that can, for people that are predisposed, really trigger a, a significant episode. A couple other ones, opiates. So pain, pain medications. Uh, I, I saw research where both with the administration of opiates, as well as withdrawal was able to, to trigger uh, manic like symptoms in, in some people. Uh, another one that we do in psychiatry, benzodiazepines. So benzodiazepines are frequently used um, for bringing people down. Um, but once if people are on a high dose and they withdraw from it, it can cause uh, uh, manic-like symptoms as well. Uh, also illegal, illegal substances. So street drugs, you know, things like cocaine, right? That's a big issue. Marijuana actually is a big issue. A lot of times people think that especially cannabis is not that big of a deal, but in reality, both for psychotic disorders and bipolar disorder, it, it can be one of the big causative uh, factors that actually pulls that trigger and triggers the actual disorder. And once, once that trigger has been pulled and you actually develop bipolar or a psychotic disorder, you're pretty much stuck with that disorder and you really have to manage it for the rest of your life. So, you know, playing with some of these things, especially if you know there might be a genetic predisposition is not worth it. And even if you don't know of a genetic predisposition, it's still not worth it because it really can cause a lifelong issue. 
So we talked about medications and substances, but even certain medical conditions. Mm -hmm. So, you know, people that uh, have way too high thyroid, so hyperthyroidism, that can cause uh, mania. Um, even things like seizures, cancers, uh, HIV, multiple sclerosis, and menopause are also other things that can actually trigger manic episodes. Yeah. So we really want to encourage people to not go through menopause. <laughs> <laughs> Avoid it as much as possible. Yes. But, but the bottom line is of course, yeah, all these, all these, there are real medical uh, causes. Some of them can be more easily um, helped than, than others. Uh, but we want to keep our whole physical bodies and, and you know, in as best of shape as possible to prevent the development of uh, bipolar disorder. So we've talked a lot about uh, what it is, uh, where it comes from, and so on. And so let's let's go ahead and dive into the treatment. So yeah, and ahead. you know, before we do that, just a couple other quick factors that can play a role in developing bipolar disorder. Uh, childhood trauma, because mm. that really can be just a, a major factor in, in many disorders, but definitely bipolar. Um, circadian rhythm issues where people have insomnia and, and other circadian rhythm problems that can trigger. And then major stressors or life events are also causative for bipolar. All right. So let's talk a little bit about treatment for bipolar disorder. So Jonathan, when you're thinking about treating bipolar, like what are the main things that you're thinking about? If we're thinking from more of a traditional psychiatry perspective, it's pretty much medication. Uh, for most bipolar patients, you know, I hear you know when I'm attending conferences and things of that nature, that's pretty much the only thing they talk about. Uh, be, and there's a lot of skepticism behind other things in terms of their benefit for bipolar disorder, which I don't think is necessarily fair. But uh, with that being said, medications are definitely a big part of it. And so there are you know a few classes of medications that we typically use in bipolar disorder. Uh, you know, the three main things are going to be lithium mood stabilizers and the antipsychotics. Yeah. And it's kind of interesting because, uh, usually when people are diagnosed with bipolar, uh, the, the main thing that, that we're supposed to tell them is like, okay, you pretty much need to stay on medications for the rest of your life. But again, I always think about, okay, well, a hundred years ago when we didn't have medications, um, how did people do, you know, with bipolar, without medications? And obviously a lot of people didn't do so well, but there are actually some studies that, that show that, um, a lot of people would have manic episodes one or two, and then the likelihood of developing more significant manic episodes was relatively low. And there's actually some people that believe that by injudiciously using medication. And of course there's other, you know, factors that have changed over the last hundred years. But, um, one of the factors a lot of people point to is, is that because we haven't used medication so well, um, with our treatment of bipolar, sometimes it can actually in, exacerbate and mm -hmm. even worsen, uh, the course of, of the illness over time. Now that being said, I do tell people, look, if you're manic and if you're having mood instability, we really should look at medication. We should look at um, keeping you on medication for a while. But I always have that conversation with them telling them, you know, um, some people don't need to be on meds all the time. And a lot of people, you know, can actually function pretty well, especially in between episodes without medication. 
One thing I, I pretty much always tell all my patients is we want to use minimum effective dose and minimum effective number of medications. Yeah. And so for some people, that's zero, right? For other people, that is using maximum dosage because the severity of their illness justifies it, right? But in most cases, especially if, say, it's a particular season, right, where you are maybe more stressed, you're not eating well, you're not sleeping, and so your bipolar symptoms tend to be more severe, we might need a higher dose. But over time, once you start balancing out these other aspects of your life, we can start to kind of taper it down. That's right. Yeah. And a lot of times, uh, you know, when once we get people stabilized, if they're willing, I'll, I'll just say this, the people that do the best in the long term with their bipolar are those people that have, in my experience, been willing to apply a more holistic strategy to managing their illness and using other things besides just medications. And, and, you know, the beautiful thing about bipolar is that, yeah, medications are often necessary, at least for a time, but there are actually a lot of holistic lifestyle interventions, uh, things that people can do to manage their illness. So uh, I hear them all asking, Dr. Binus, what are those things that we can do to manage our bipolar disorder? Because my other psychiatrist said medications is the only thing. Well, one of the key elements, and, and I think to me, this is almost more important than anything else, is for people to actually develop structure in their life. And I know people don't usually like that. I mean, some people are more structured. I tend to be pretty structured. And so it's easy for me to say, right? But in reality, one of the main triggers for bipolar, well, I'll just give an example. I've had patients that travel across time zones and uh, and then that can easily trigger bipolar mania if they have bipolar. And so that obviously is a lack of structure. It gets them out of their, their circadian rhythm. And so if you have a regular circadian rhythm, a regular time to sleep and, and you're consistent with that, and ideally, you know, you're getting a couple hours of sleep before midnight. And not only that, you're, you're also having regular time to eat during the day too, then that in and of itself can do a lot in stabilizing someone's mood. And I know it sounds like almost overly simplistic, but that is key. I think that's foundational. If you're not doing that, these other holistic strategies and other things that we're talking about for treatment, um, I think you can almost throw it out the window. You, uh, for everybody, keeping a regular uh, sleep schedule, you know, sleep hygiene, all those things are incredibly important. But specifically for bipolar patients, I always tell them, the time you sleep, right, is sacred. And so what, no matter what is getting in the way of your sleep, you need to cut it out. And so that could be, you know, it could be alcohol, it could be nicotine, it could be, you know, marijuana, it could be um, even you know, like people that are sort of constantly pulling at you, wanting you to stay up later and go out and party and do things of this nature, right? And so you, you have to put limitations, especially if you want to minimize um, your triggering of future mood episodes. And so, you know, decide on a, a time that's going to be best for you and preferably something that starts before midnight. And uh, that time is for sleep only and make it really sacred. Absolutely. And, you know, another thing that I think can be really helpful is identifying, you know, what are the things that tend to overstimulate me or overstress me? And, you know, I was thinking along those lines when you just mentioned like the substances that could get in the way of the sleep, but just even if you didn't get in the way of sleep, substances by themselves could definitely trigger. So that's another, I think, very 
simple thing, easier said than done, but still, you know, an obvious thing I think that people need to address is, is, is there any addiction present? Are there, is there any substance um, abuse? And even if you don't think that you're maybe addicted to alcohol or cannabis or, you know, whatever it might be, maybe it's even a behavioral addiction like gambling or something like that. Or screens. Or screens. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, media, those things that overstimulate the brain can definitely trigger instability. And, you know, we're talking about one of the the main aspects of, of bipolar when someone goes into mood instability is that they tend to get more dopamine and norepinephrine being dumped in their brain and addictive behavior. And even again, even if you don't feel like you're an addict, but you're engaging in something that could be addictive, that has that dopamine stimu- overstimulation that can trigger mood instability. So aside from, uh, you know, monitoring your sleep, what are some other more holistic ways that we can use to manage our bipolar illness? Yeah. So I think, you know, having regular exercise is actually really important just for general mental health, but particularly for, for bipolar, I think it really helps to balance the brain chemistry and prevent, uh, as the mood episodes, both the mania and the depression. Now, that being said, you know, if someone starts getting manic, they can actually overexercise and that can be dangerous too. But having a regular regimented exercise program can really help balance that brain um, chemistry. And of course, like we already said, you know, avoiding anything that could be addictive, um, taking care of your physical body is very important because we already talked earlier, you know, that some of these things like, um, hyperthyroidism, extreme hyperthyroidism, uh, cancers, um, certain types of seizures, uh, these sorts of things can actually increase the likelihood. And so by really paying attention to those things that physically need to be addressed and also taking preventive measures to, for example, improve your nutrition and as a result, decrease your risk for, for cancer, for example, you know, that, um, in and of itself is, is really important as well. So aside from that, uh, I know a lot of our uh, a lot of our listeners probably uh, consider taking supplements or do take supplements. Uh, do you have any particular feedback on that? Yeah, you know, a lot of people think like, okay, it's because uh, the um, one of the gold standards, at least in the past, and it's arguably even still the gold standard for tr- medical treatment is lithium. Then look, oh there's natural lithium. There's, there's something called lithium orotate. So I'll just buy some lithium orotate over the counter and take that and manage all my bipolar. Now that, I mean, that makes it sound like I'm, I'm against lithium orotate. I'm actually not, but what I'm saying, it's not a cure-all, right? And so the, the, the interesting thing about lithium orotate is lithium is lithium. In other words, it's very similar actually to lithium carbonate. It's just a, a micro dose. So lithium carbonate, the lowest dose they make in a capsule form is 150 milligrams. Uh, lithium orotate usually comes at fives, maybe 10 milligram pills. So you can dose it much lower and that can actually often help people, especially if they have milder bipolar symptoms. But there's a caveat here. Uh, you got to be careful with how much lithium orotate you take because it's one of the notorious side effects for lithium in general is kidney dysfunction. And if you take too much regular lithium medication, 
lithium, then you can definitely get that over time. But lithium orotate can also cause the kidney dysfunction. Actually, uh, at least in one study and, and possibly multiple studies, they've shown that uh, lithium orotate milligram per milligram versus lithium carbonate, which is the one that's prescribed, is more dangerous for the kidneys. Now, that being said, of course, you're taking much lower doses of lithium orotate, so it's likely going to be safe, but you just don't, you want to be very careful not to overdose yourself on lithium orotate. And yeah, Jonathan, I, I think you, you had mentioned um, earlier when we were talking a couple other supplements and why don't you go ahead? There's, uh, there's a few that, you know, might be uh, some that you can consider and there's a, a bunch that you probably want to avoid. With all this being said, we do want to say, you know, always talk to your doctor about this. Um, but aside from lithium orotate, some of the ones that might be helpful, at least during the de depressive, depressive phase, um, would be something like creatine. However, you know, there is some concern about that potentially triggering mania in some people. Also, some other ones that you might want to avoid, things like St. John's wort, 5-HTP, SAMe, and yohimbine. Yohimbine is a uh, isn't necessarily related to psychiatry per se or mental health per se, as it's typically used um, for libido enhancement. Um, but that is definitely one that has a lot of uh, complications associated with it. Uh, some people, when they're you know dealing with uh, bipolar illness, you know obviously they're going to be dealing with sleep issues or they might be dealing with anxiety issues. So sometimes we'll use some supplements, especially when we're when we're uh, discussing more milder forms of mania uh, to help them with their sleep or anxiety. Yeah. And so with those supplements, it's pretty clear to me that you want to be careful again with anything that could be overstimulating. One, one, one thing that I think we also should mention when we're talking about holistic treatments to address uh, bipolar is that you really want to look at your stress levels too. And, and that can include like dealing with past childhood trauma or traumas in your life in general, and then your current stressors too. Stress can just be a big trigger for mood instability for anyone, but especially for, for bipolar. And so I think really addressing and finding tools on how to cope with stress and of course doing what you can to minimize your stress levels in your life, that, that's a really important intervention that people can do. And if, if you need to work with a therapist in order to minimize your stress, that's one thing that uh, going back, you know, a lot of psychiatrists only recommend the medications for bipolar patients, but not necessarily the psychotherapy. And so that's still a major component that should definitely be considered. Absolutely. Absolutely. So one of the other things that I've been actually using pretty successfully here recently, and I've been really excited about it because bipolar depression is notori notoriously difficult to treat. And a lot, of, we don't really have a lot of great medical interventions. A lot of times we have to end up using antidepressants to help people with bipolar depression. Cause like all the regular medications that are, rec, um, that are, uh, approved for bipolar depression aren't working. And so that, that of course carries a risk of inducing mania and mood instability. So it just becomes this vicious cycle. One thing I've been using recently though, and people might think, wow, how could that work? But it actually often does work for people is bright light therapy. Now, of course, if someone's manic, they should not do bright light therapy. Actually, the opposite is true. You, um, they, there are studies that show that exposure to more darkness and wearing blue blocking glasses can help stabilize the mood and, and um, help treat the manic phase. But when someone's in the bipolar depressive phase, bright light therapy can be very helpful there was one study that showed that uh, people that 
used bright light therapy in this particular study. They did it in the early afternoon between 1 p.m. and 2.30 uh, p.m. in the afternoon. And they basically started with 15 minutes and they used a light box, which is specifically for bright light therapy. And they started with 15 minutes the first week, second week they did 30, third week they did 45, and then finally they ended up doing 60 minutes. And they um, found that over 60% of those people actually responded, their bipolar depression improved significantly. And to me, that's like, wow, that's better than the medication results that we have. And I've actually seen that in clinical practice that a lot of people do actually respond, their bipolar depression gets better with the bright light therapy. Uh, that's that's a very interesting point, Dr. Binus. So in, in uh, sort of summary of kind of what we talked about, you know, bipolar is, uh, it's a very prevalent illness, right? And can be very severe and very uh, cause a lot of uh, not only impairment in your own life, but affect a lot of the people around you. And there are some distinct uh, sort of, uh, you know, uh, criteria that are required for diagnosis that, you know, the general public or lay, lay individuals tend to get mixed up. Um we talked about uh, some of the genetic risks behind it and some of the uh, medical or medication induced uh, reasons behind it. Yeah. And, you know, going back to that misdiagnosis aspect, it's of course the lay public, but again, I, I think that unfortunately a lot of times people, even by clinicians are misdiagnosed and it can be either at times overdiagnosed or sometimes missed and, uh, and underdiagnosed. So it can go either way. And, it's also important to remember the childhood trauma that can trigger the bipolar, the, the medical issues, circadian rhythm problems, and the stress. But the good news is that we do have really good ways of treating bipolar disorder. And so if you suffer from that, get some help, but try to find a holistic approach because it's not just medication. Medications can be tremendously helpful, but it's also looking at your circadian rhythm. It's looking at making sure that you're managing your stress, you're dealing with childhood trauma issues, you're avoiding medications or supplements that could actually trigger uh, manic uh, episodes. It's getting good exercise, making sure you're staying well hydrated, eating the right type of food. And all of these things will really give you a much better outcome when it comes to dealing with bipolar disorder. And so I think for a lot of people, it doesn't have to be a death sentence. It doesn't have to be something where they're like, oh man, I'm never going to be able to really live life in a positive way. No, I, I deal with a lot of people every day that have bipolar and still live their lives in a very happy, meaningful way. And if you only take one thing away from today's show, remember this, if mental illness is a whole person problem, then it must have a whole person solution. I'm Jonathan Edens. I'm Dr. Daniel Binus. And you've been listening to the, the Brain People, People Podcast. Thanks for listening. To hear more episodes, find us on social media, or support us financially, visit thebrainpeoplepodcast.com. 